Welcome to Curbside Console Statistical Review, where we break down study design and statistical methods in studies published in the NEJM. I'm Dr. Amanda Fernandez, one of this year's editorial fellows of the New England Journal of Medicine. On our last episode, Dr. Rosen joined us for a discussion on screening and management of osteoporosis. We concluded the podcast briefly discussing romosuzumab, a recently approved medication by the FDA. On this episode of Statistical Review, we're going to lay the foundations for missing data. We are going to cover what are missing data, why it happens, and how researchers deal with missing data. Joining us in discussion is my co-host, Dr. Dave Harrington, Emeritus Professor of Biostatistics at the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Amanda. So to get into missing data, let's quickly recap the ARCH trial. In the active controlled fracture study in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis at high risk, or the ARCH trial, the authors evaluated the use of remosuzumab, a monoclonal antibody that binds to and inhibits chlorostin. In patients with osteoporosis in a prior fracture, they were randomized to receive romosuzumab monthly or weekly alunginate for a year, followed by open-label alunginate in both groups. The authors found that over a period of 24 months, patients who received romosuzumab had a 48% lower risk of new vertebral fractures compared to the alunginate-only group. The trial had started with approximately 4,000 patients randomized one-to-one to receive either romosuzumab or alunginate. They had 2,047 participants in the alunginate arm and 2,046 in the romosuzumab arm to begin with. But at the end of the trial, for their analysis, they had 1,576 in the alunginate and 1,574 in the romosuzumab arm, suggesting that there was missing data. So to start off, Dave, what are missing data? This seems like a silly question to ask because it's, it's two simple words, but just to make sure that we all are on the same page. Yeah, no, it's not silly at all, and it's one of the most important uh, things to look at when you evaluate a clinical trial. Missing data are defined as values that are not available and would potentially be meaningful for analysis if they were observed. Under that term, missing can include missing outcome data, missing covariates, or even missing baseline data, which okay. happens occasionally. Why does data go missing when you're conducting a clinical trial? Lots of reasons for important variables to be unavailable. And of course, outcome data is among the most important that could be missing. In fact, it's typically rare for a trial not to have any missing data because it would mean that every patient had complete follow-up, and that's not simply, simply not reasonable in a clinical situation. Some of the common reasons have to do with people who discontinue, patients who discontinue a treatment because of side effects or not adherence, and patients may find the drug inconvenient to take. Then there are missed study visits, and in studies with long-term follow-up and frequent study visits, it's often quite common for people to miss a visit, often for no other reason than it's just inconvenient. If we look at the ARCH trial and the consort diagrams, some of the reasons for missing data included early withdrawal from the study, missed follow-up visits, adverse events from treatment, non-compliance, and in some cases, death or non-availability of a clinical measurement at a planned clinical endpoint. Sometimes there can be clinical scenarios preventing the collection of certain variables. Imagine if elderly patients in the ARCH trial were hospitalized for reasons other than fractures, and thus they were unable to make it to their appointments. Okay, got it. So to summarize, really, there are a lot of reasons why data can go missing. What are some of the problems associated with this missing data? The biggest problem is whether or not the missing data is somehow correlated or associated with the response. And so the data on which you have complete measurements may not be an unbiased look at the data. So really, the most important thing is to be careful that one minimizes the extent to which missingness 
can depend upon observations that you would like to make but can't make. The randomization is important. So the randomization often helps because it means that if there are reasons such as misvisits or lack of follow-up, it should be balanced between the two arms because those sorts of things should happen about equally often as long as there are the same follow-up schedules on both groups. If most of the missing data is related to a side effect, then one needs to be very, very careful because, of course, the side effects can differ between treatments. And so there it's important to gather as much information as possible about the side effect profile over time. So just to clarify, when patients discontinue a medication for side effect reasons, how do researchers go about then getting that data? Because they're obviously not coming back to the trial because of that side effect. So they may not be able to get the data, but the most important thing is to be sure one understands whether the side effect profile is different between two arms and whether those side effects may lead to missed visits. And then one has to be very, very careful then about whether those missed visits because of side effects are going to cause difficulty in interpreting the trial. So all of this sounds quite complicated. So when researchers are designing and conducting trials, where can they get, or is there guidance for how to prevent and handle missing data? Well, much of the guidance is really common sense in the execution of a trial. And it's something that people are well aware of in most cases. So that includes things like having really careful specification of when the follow-up visits should occur, having follow-up visits that occur equally often on both arms, making sure that all the clinical research assistants understand the value of follow-up visits and contact people who seem to be missing visits. Sometimes missing data happens just because people didn't record information that may be in the medical record but didn't get onto the case report forms. So really good training of clinical research assistants helps with that sort of thing. There was a report that was sponsored by the National Research Council in 2012 and was inspired by some of the difficulties that the FDA faces with missing data, providing a set of guidelines for both trying to minimize missingness and what to do when it happens. And that report is well worth reading, but is too detailed for us to go into right here. Oh, yeah, for sure. I should add that if you are interested in reading a summary version of that, we do have an article that was published in 2012 and that we'll link to at the end of this podcast. So looking at the ARCH trial, um, when you look at medications like alendronate, it already has a high non-compliance rate. With outcomes such as new fractures, patients are taking it to prevent a future new fracture. And so when they have to take a weekly or a monthly medication, they may feel less inclined to because the expectation of benefit might not be met there. And so really taking what you said, Dave, the importance here when doing this kind of a trial is really having a good research staff around you making sure that participants are informed well about the actual trial, the medications, what to do about side effects, and then in terms of following up with them if they have any questions or concerns. And that really helps prevent this missingness, as you called it. So you're involved in a clinical trial, and you've done everything really to avoid missing data. But as you said, it's really inevitable. How do you look at missing data? So looking at missing data or accommodating it in an analysis is a very, very difficult topic and has been the subject of a great deal of research. Um, the reasons for missing this really dictate how one would think about trying to adjust analysis in the presence of missing data. So statisticians classify missing data into three broad categories. Missing completely at random, which means that the missingness is a pure random subset of the data. That's actually quite rare. That would happen only if, for instance, there was some sort of computer failure 
when records were being gathered and a few records were missing, but not related in any way to the patient characteristics or outcome. Missing at random, which sounds a lot like missing completely at random, um, but is a subtle distinction. And missing at random means that the missingness may be correlated with patient features, but it's correlated with things that are observable. So you can adjust for it. For instance, missingness may be highly associated with age, in which case then you can adjust for the missingness by looking separately at patients in different age groups. Or it may be related to a schedule of study visits, so you can adjust for that. Missing not at random is the most vexing kind of missing data because it means that not only are data missing in a way that's associated with the outcome or maybe patient features, but it's done in such a way that you can't adjust for it because it's, say, associated or correlated with things that are unobservable. So we know in a clinical trial there are lots of unobserved potential confounders. The randomization has hopefully balanced those, but if one of those unobservable confounders is associated with the missingness, then statisticians have a very, very hard time knowing how to adjust for it because it requires the use of models, and those assumptions cannot really be tested or verified in those models. Got it. Okay. And so once you've classified your missing data, how do you start to analyze or handle this missing data? So that's a very, very good question and a very difficult one to know the perfect answer for. There are three general ways to analyze missing data in a clinical trial. The one that used to be very common is a complete case analysis. So the complete case analysis says we're going to restrict our analysis of this trial to all the participants on whom we have complete data. The basis of that is that very difficult assumption that missingness is completely at random. So there's some loss in sample size when you do a complete case analysis because you eliminate the cases with missing data, but that's not the serious concern. The serious concern is that you have systematically eliminated patients for whom the outcome might be different because their missingness is correlated with outcome. Okay. So just to summarize that, in complete case analysis, if it's missing, data is excluded. So a second method, which has been widely used but is also not really as ideal as others, is single imputation. So single imputation says, well, why don't we just take the mean of everybody else's response and fill that in for the people who are missing? It's appealing because it's easy, but it has several pitfalls. And one pitfall, of course, is that the people who have missing data may not be like the people who, on whom you have data and were able to calculate the mean observation. The other is you're making an imputation there, which means in part you're guessing, maybe with a good estimated guess of what the outcome should be, but you're not incorporating any of the uncertainty that come from making that guess or from not knowing the answer completely. Using that as background, in the ARCH trial, one of their uh, outcome variables was bone mineral density at a 12-month checkup. And so if a participant didn't come to that 12-month bone mineral density scan, what they did was they used a prior bone mineral density value. They called it the last observation carried forward. And so that would be an example of a single imputation analysis. Yes, that would be a single imputation analysis. And in that situation, that probably was a reasonable method because if bone mineral density is not changing very much in people, then uh, carrying an observation forward from the last one, as long as it was not too far in the past, is a reasonable way to fill in a missing value. So one of the ways in which people have uh, studied adjusting for some of the problems with single imputation is to do multiple imputation. And in fact, multiple imputation 
is really listed as one of the preferred methods of analysis in the National Council, National Research Council report that we referred to earlier. Multiple imputation has a very simple idea behind it, but it turns out to be extremely useful. And the idea is that uh, if you're going to fill in a value for someone, you should fill in that value based on some model that uses as much as you know about that patient to predict what that value is. So you can get a single value to fill in, but to incorporate the fact that there's some uncertainty because you're still doing something that's estimated from the data, what happens is people fill in three values or four values, and they create three or four data sets, each one with a single value filled in. And so that adds a certain complexity to the analysis, although not too much, but it does add a way to say, this filling in business is subject to uncertainty and we should account for the variability that comes from our imputation method. And so multiple imputation is really pretty much preferred now in many instances, not all, but in many instances. And when you're looking at a clinical trial, can there be more than one way of analyzing missing data? Oh yeah, Um, and in fact, I think the preferred thing to do with a trial that has missing data is to analyze it several ways. And in the best of all possible worlds, each of those analyses would provide or produce essentially the same qualitative results. And that gives you confidence that even though each method for handling missing data is based on slightly different assumptions, if they all come out about the same, then the missingness mechanism is not too sensitive to the assumptions that are behind each of those methods. Okay, and that makes sense. So taking it back to that ARCH trial again, I know I mentioned that they used single imputation analysis, but if you actually look, they also used multiple imputations, so they did use more than one there. They did. When you're looking at a clinical trial and you're analyzing and appraising it, is there a certain amount of missing data that becomes concerning? No. It's all concerning. It's all concerning. It's all concerning. So I think that um, people love to have cutoffs that say less than 10% of missingness is fine. You don't have to worry about it or less than 5%. The issue with missingness is that if it's missing in a pocket of patients, in a subset of patients, even if that subset is relatively small, it can cause serious bias in the trial. So think of a study that did enroll elderly, like the ARCH trial, and assume that everybody over the age of 80 had missing observations. So you'd become completely unable to draw any inferences about the real elderly on that trial. So it is less the percentage of missing data and more the characteristics of patients who have that missingness that's important. How does sensitivity analyses fit into this picture of missing data? So sensitivity analyses are approaches where you look at two or three different ways to analyze your data based on different assumptions about what might be going on behind the data that you can't really test. And so missing data is one setting where sensitivity analyses are widely used. If there are missingness in observations and outcome observations, then you will find that investigators will try last observations carried forward as they did with the bone mineral density, mm-hmm. or they may use multiple imputation to see if fitting a model provides any real value there, or in some instances look at a complete case analysis to see if they're essentially getting the same results. That's very reassuring to have those sensitivity analyses when you have different ways of analyzing data. Thanks a lot, Dave. That's been very helpful. Let's quickly summarize what we've covered today. So missing data are values that are not available but would be clinically meaningful for analysis if they were observed. Missing data are inevitable. In fact, it is rare for a research investigation not to have missing data. 
Most common reasons for missing data are missed appointments, missed clinic visits, and adverse events. When you're looking at missing data, there are three main ways to analyze this. Complete case analysis, where all the missing data are removed, single imputation, or multiple imputation. And when looking and analyzing at missing data, you can use more than one method in your analysis. Thanks a lot, Dave, for joining us on this episode of Statistical Review. I hope we've given our listeners a bit more insight into both aspects of clinical practice and a point of access to the primary literature that makes up the New England Journal of Medicine. As always, we want your feedback. Please email us at resident360 at nejm.org or feel free to reach out to us via NEJM Resident 360 website. I want to thank Dr. Harrington today and our production team here at NEJM Resident 360, which includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasas, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. A special thanks to my co-fellows, Dr. Angela Castellanos and Dr. Angela Chen, and our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hammondvik. I'm Dr. Amanda Fernandez, Editorial Fellow at NEJM. Please join us again for our next episode.